0: KH-3650 lecture, Thursday, September 3rd, anaerobic glycolysis and acid-base balance. Last time we spent a good bit of time talking about glycolysis, uh, this second energy system um, that uh, we we saw with creatine phosphate that that energy system had certain advantages and certain disadvantages. And... uh, so, we, we started talking about our second main energy system, which is anaerobic glycolysis. Um, what were some of the main advantages of glycolysis as an energy system? Duration longer. Duration's longer, okay. Lasts a minute or two minutes compared to how long for creatine phosphate? Ten, Ten seconds or so. Okay, what else? Well, more ATP, bigger ATP energy yield. Okay. Um, what else? Creatine phosphate depletes in muscle fairly quickly. What's the? What are the main fuel sources for glycolysis? Glucose and glycogen, right? Do we deplete those quickly in the body? No, so we've got a very plentiful fuel source. Okay, so lots of advantages of, uh, uh, for glycolysis. And there are some distinct disadvantages. Uh, what's probably the major one? It's, well, it's long. Okay, so it's 18 steps, so it takes longer than creatine phosphate, so that's a bit of an issue. There's this metabolic acidosis that occurs, okay, that's associated with um, fatigue. Okay, so some... some uh, Disadvantages. Alright, so when we finish last, but we, we, one of the other advantages we were talking about last time is, is this whole notion of this lactate molecule and how it's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, I know there's a tendency to kind of get lost in all the details and everything, so I want to review just a little bit. Uh, glycolysis, you know, this is a part where we start with glucose or glycogen. We go down to this one intermediate that I want you to remember the name of, which is pyruvate. And then in glycolysis, pyruvate goes to lactate. Okay, and so this may be occurring in skeletal muscle during exercise at relatively high intensity. Okay, so we're going glucose or glycogen to pyruvate, pyruvate to lactate, and then what happens to this lactate molecule? Yeah, but let's say this is happening right in exercising skeletal muscle. So where's a lot of this lactate going to go? Into the blood, where it circulates around the body, and then what happens to it? Taken out by certain tissues, and name three tissues for me. Liver, heart muscle, kidneys, okay, and what other kind of muscle? Slow twitch muscle fibers that are very aerobic, that can take up this lactate, and now what they can do is they can take this lactate Push it backwards to pyruvate and metabolize it aerobically. Okay? And that's called oxidizing lactate. We talked about oxidation reduction reactions, and uh, next week when we do the aerobic energy system, we'll, we'll be more specific. Okay? Uh, let's see. And so it's some of the things you can do with lactate you can oxidize it and produce ATP energy from it. Um, and that can be done in liver or muscle, particularly slow twitch muscle fibers. Um, seems like it can happen right inside the same muscle. You've got fast twitch fibers over here producing the lactate, and slow twitch fibers right next to it taking up and metabolizing the lactate. It's called the lactate shuttle. In- intramuscular, okay, intramuscular lactate shuttle. Lactate stays inside the same muscle. You can make glucose out of it. Okay, so you, your liver can take lactate and it can make glucose out of it. All right, when we finished, we were talking about this notion of um, lactate accumulating in the blood and us using it as sort of a marker of exercise intensity and its relationship to exercise performance. And we looked at how we can test somebody ramp them up in what's called an incremental exercise test where every couple of minutes we increase the exercise intensity we're measuring oxygen consumption here and taking blood samples and we know that the amount of lactate that's in the blood is a balance of how much we're dumping in and how much we're taking out so we got to this um, and again just our scheme that it's the exercising muscle that's dumping the lactate in, and it's these tissues that are highly aerobic that are taking the lactate out. And so we had our lactate threshold. Okay. Now what I thought I would do is show you, um, just to illustrate this this point a little bit further, um, well, this idea that This lactate threshold point is related to endurance exercise performance, okay, and that um, uh, it it was like that red line on the tachometer on your your car, that if you get exercising at too high of an intensity, you start to accumulate too much lactate where you can't get rid of it, and that's fairly closely associated with fatiguing at some point relatively quickly. But if you go real slow down here, where the lactate doesn't accumulate, then the problem is you're not going fast enough. So the idea is to try to find the optimal speed or exercise intensity that you can maintain for whatever the distance of this race is. Okay? Now, uh, one of our enterprising doctoral students did a research study looking at this idea, which, which we thought was pretty interesting. Basically what he did is he had uh, some reasonably well-trained runners. These were all males. They were all regionally competitive. That is, they run in races around the Atlanta metro area um, and and run fairly good times. Um, And these are, they're used to running 10k, half marathon. We did a training history on them to make sure they had, had had run races of varying distances. So basically he had them come in, did a max test on the treadmill, where every couple of minutes we were measuring oxygen consumption the whole way, and every couple of minutes he poked holes in them and got blood out of them and, and plotted that lactate profile. Then he brought them back into the lab on two different occasions and had had them do time trials on the treadmill. And uh, you know we've got the treadmill in the lab right here, and it actually right on here it has a um, uh, control panel that you you can increase or decrease the speed, and it has a um, like an odometer on it, to tell you how far you've gone. And so what he did is he had them come back on two occasions. One, they ran a 10-kilometer, 6.2-mile time trial on the treadmill. And basically their task was, if they felt good, they sped it up until they you know, could run as fast as they could for the distance. And if they started fatiguing or feeling bad, they slowed themselves down. The idea is to mimic running a race, okay? except we were able to do it in the lab under controlled conditions. So they did a 10K. Uh, they came back on another occasion and actually did a half marathon, okay, 13.1 miles uh, on the treadmill in the lab, which between you and me is a little boring, <laughs> but uh, not, these, these guys are pretty well motivated. And you can see here he's running the time trial. We've got him hooked up to the metabolic cart, which we did every, um, about every mile. We just had him put the mouthpiece in. Bless you. Thank you. Had him put the mouthpiece in. Um, breathe for a couple of minutes just so we could check their um, oxygen consumption. Um, he's got, actually you can't see it in this picture, but you can see a little bit right there, but he's got a, a heart rate strap on and a heart rate monitor, so we measured their heart rate. And then this is a catheter that we stuck in a, uh, uh, a vein in his arm, and it's got a long tube on it, and we hooked it up to syringes down here so while they were running, you could just pull blood samples that we would measure for lactate. So we didn't have to stop them or interrupt their running. We just let them run as fast as they could for that particular distance. Uh, And here's what he found. These are the, the, here we've got, uh, well, distance down here. So mile 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 6.2. So that was 10 kilometers. And then uh, 8, 10, 12, 13.1. That was the half marathon. And over on this side, we've got lactate concentration and a typical resting lactate concentration is somewhere around 1, one 1.5, something like you know, right in this range right here. What we saw when they ran a half marathon, and this is time trial, they're running this as quickly as they can, they ran at a pace that their lactates really didn't go up very much. Okay? They only went up around, you know, from about 1.5 to about 2, so they stayed pretty constant. They did jump up here at the end. Why did lactates go up here? They did the big push to the end, right? Because they got to 12 miles, they realized they only had a mile and a tenth to go, and so they picked up the pace and pushed it to the end, and sure enough, their lactates jumped up here like this. But when these same runners ran 10 kilometers, shorter distance, going to push it harder, here's what their lactates did. They went from 2 to 3 to 4 to 5 to 6 to 6. Okay? So uh, it's apparent that there's... We think, at least, it's somewhere between running 10 kilometers, the intensity of running 10 kilometers and the intensity of running a half marathon, that it's what we call this lactate steady state. Somewhere we hit the intensity where we start to accumulate lactate progressively, um, uh, which can lead to fatigue. Uh, This was a compilation of that study and a couple of others down here, you, you should see the same effect with the lactates, whether they're running a marathon or a half marathon. So they stay right around one, one and a half, two millimoles lactate. When you run 10k, it goes like this, and when you run 5k, it goes like this. Okay, so clearly, the amount of lactate that we accumulate is related to performance, um, and it's not quite as simple as saying. It's just this is the point right here because when you run a shorter distance at higher intensity, your lactates are up in here somewhere, okay? Um, Now, this, this lactate threshold occurs because we start to accumulate lactate in the blood faster than we can get rid of it, all right? Well, why does that happen? Uh, One notion is we uh, certain areas of the muscle may not be getting enough oxygen to support aerobic metabolism. Okay, so let's back up here to this scheme. Get back to it here. Okay, if we've got a muscle cell and you're asking it to exercise, If And we'll we'll cover this in more detail next week, but one of the, the major characteristics of our aerobic energy system is you need oxygen. You've got to get oxygen molecules into this muscle cell and into this mitochondria. If you can't do that, then this whole energy system starts to back up. And what happens is pyruvate can't go through these steps. And so if you start getting a lot of pyruvate accumulating and it can't go this way what's the next likely thing? It's got another path, it can go this way to lactate. That's, sort of, that's the um, classic explanation that co- uh, caused people to call this the anaerobic threshold. You don't have enough oxygen in the muscle, so you start to go anaerobic. Okay? There may be some evidence that that might be the case in isolated areas of certain muscle cells but that's not the most important reason. Okay? And I'll show you some evidence next week um, where it looks like the muscle cells, even at relatively high exercise intensities, still get plenty of oxygen. Okay? So this is a this is a fairly minor reason. Okay. Alright, so there may be some low oxygen in some places, but fairly minor reason. Um, As you start to go up in exercise intensity, alright, when I'm just walking at this kind of pace like this, what types of muscle fibers am I most likely using or recruiting? Do I need to use fast twitch fibers? No, No, because the activity is very low force, you know, uh, you got plenty of time to do this activity as you start to increase exercise intensity uh, and the power requirements increase, you start to recruit or use more and more fast-twitch muscle fibers. Okay, And w- when we go through the characteristics of those in the neuromuscular section, one of the things that we see is that those fibers produce lots of force very quickly, and so they're going to depend on what types of energy systems. Aerobic, anaerobic, because they need lots of energy very quickly, right? And that's what you use creatine phosphate and glycolysis for. So, even if there's plenty of oxygen in this muscle, if I'm starting to use more fast-twitch fibers because I'm running faster and faster and faster, those fast-twitch fibers are going to produce more lactate. Okay? And it's got nothing to do with how much oxygen's in there. It's just their nature. It's the characteristic of those muscle fibers. They're going to produce more lactate. And they do so because they... As exercise intensity increases, we start using glycolysis more and more and more and more. Okay, Higher exercise intensity, greater use of fast-twitch fibers, greater use of glycolysis, you're going to get more lactate. Now, um, these all deal with the production of lactate, but we also have to consider the mechanisms that we remove lactate from the blood. Okay? What are those tissues, again, that help us remove lactate? Liver, heart, kidneys, slow to its muscle fibers, okay? Now, as you start to increase exercise intensity, what happens to your heart rate? Goes up, increases. Why does it go up? Because it's beating faster. Why does your heart beat faster when you exercise at a higher intensity? To get more oxygen to to the muscles, right? We've got to increase our cardiac output. We've got to... Oxygen is carried by what in the body? Blood. hemoglobin in the blood. So we've got to send more oxygenated blood to every muscle in the body. You're sitting on a cycle ergometer, pedaling as hard as you can, which you will be doing in about 20 hours. Okay? Sitting on a cycle ergometer, pedaling as hard as you can. Uh, Do you need to send oxygenated blood to all the muscles in your body? Which ones? Just the ones that are working, right? So what happens to other areas of the body that are not exercising in terms of blood flow? Do we need to send blood there? Reduced amount. Reduced amount. What about your liver and your kidneys when you're exercising at high intensity? Do they need lots of blood flow? Mm. We'll cover this more in the cardiovascular section, but part of the problem, how much blood do you have in your body? Average sized person, how much total blood? roughly 6 liters, okay? Um, what's that? A liter? No, 7 750, half liter. You got about you got about 10 or 10 of these, okay? You don't have enough blood in your body to send it every place in your body at the same time. So the g- body's got to make some priority choices of where to send it. So if you're exercising at high intensity, you're not going to send a whole lot of blood flow to your gastrointestinal tract, to your liver, to your kidneys because you need it elsewhere. Those are tissues that can take up lactate and metabolize it, but as we go up in exercise intensity, what happens is we start to reduce our ability to remove lactate because those tissues aren't getting as much blood flow. And that's how the lactate molecules get there, is in blood flow. Okay? So, uh, we've addressed mechanisms of how lactate production goes up and also mechanism, uh, at least a, a proposed mechanism, of how lactate removal might be reduced or at least doesn't go up any further in the face of more lactate production, okay? So what you get is lactate's real steady because we're taking it out as fast as we can put it in, but we start, taking, we start putting it in faster and faster and faster and we can't keep up in terms of the removal. So we get that lactate threshold, Okay. Um, this, this just shows uh, and actually the color, the color on this thing is really terrible um, but basically this is recovery time so if you do some kind of intense exercise where you have increased your lactate levels um, and then you go through a recovery period this shows the line of what happens when you continue with activity like we talked about last time you keep moving you cool down properly and by continuing to move, you keep the muscles working at a at a much lower intensity, but that keeps blood flow going so that you circulate lactate around the body to remove the lactate. If you just go over to the uh, grass and lay down, okay, the lactate still is taken up and removed, but a, at a much slower rate. Okay. Um, what what this illustrates is uh, are the differences across. The lifespan, with with our glycolytic capability, and basically what you see, not uncommon with a lot of physiological uh, characteristics, it's low at a relatively young age, peaks, you know, in the 20s or 30s or so, and then slowly declines as as the individual ages. Okay, um, youth do not have as high of an anaerobic capacity, particularly with glycolysis that adults do. Okay? The main reason what's what's the rate limiting enzyme for glycolysis? Yeah. PFK. Alright? Kids, the the PFK, this particular enzyme, is not very highly developed in children. Okay? So what happens is then they, they, they can't run glycolysis at as high of a rate. As they mature as they go through uh, puberty and start to mature and become young adults and then uh, adults, the PFK enzyme becomes fully active and they have a higher anaerobic capacity, All right? So that's one of the things to consider if you're, you know, if you're going to be a physical education teacher, you're going to be a coach or a trainer and you work with kids, you got to remember that kids, particularly prepubescent kids, do not have a real high anaerobic uh, glycolytic capability, okay? Okay. So if you're going to do interval type games or sports or training with kids, you got to make sure and give them plenty of recovery time between those intervals, okay? And you can't expect too much of them in terms of their anaerobic capacity. Um, Now why does this happen? Why does this decline happen? Is it just age? You know, getting old sucks? What is it? why is it that so many physiological characteristics, but in this case, anaerobic capacity, well, how come it goes down as we get older? We're not able to perform all the functions. We're, function. We're not able to or we choose not to. Okay. Uh, as we'll see with the variety of things as we go through the semester, there, there are clearly some things that are related to aging that you can't prevent. So there is some decline in anaerobic capacity as you age. However, the majority of this decline, um, particularly in the, in the 40s and 50s, is mostly related to uh, increased levels of inactivity. As people get older, they become less active. And in particular, even if they are still fairly physically active, what kinds of activities do they usually reduce to a large degree? High intensity, right? People may still go out and walk, but they don't perform the same kind of high-intensity exercise or sports that they used to. I mean, that's not globally, but that's probably the, the majority of the population, certainly certainly in this country and other industrialized countries. We, we become less active as we get older, and we do much less high-intensity activity, so our anaerobic capacity declines, okay? All right. Now, um, what I'm going to do next is the acid-base balance part. And then from that, once we have a good basis of understanding with acid-base balance, we'll move on probably on Tuesday to do um, manipulation of this energy system. Very similar to how we manipulated the creatine phosphate energy system with um, creatine loading, we're going to look at how we might manipulate this energy system with... uh, 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 kind of manipulating the acid-base balance in the body. All right. Okay, so let's move on to uh, acid-base balance just to make sure we're all on the same page with with the understanding of, of this concept. And my intention is not to turn this into a chemistry class, but just to make sure that everybody has a a reasonable uh, understanding of these concepts. All right. An acid, if it's been a while since you've had a chemistry class, uh, an acid is a hydrogen ion donor. Okay? An example is HCl, or hydrochloric acid, um, which will dissociate and donate this hydrogen ion. A base... Is, a, is the opposite. It's a hydrogen ion acceptor. A good example here that we're going to talk about a good bit later is bicarbonate. okay, HCO3. It can take up this hydrogen ion and, and form carbonic acid, which we can then turn into something else, which we'll uh, look at in a little bit. Now, this concept of pH is based, as, as we mentioned last time, in the concentration of this hydrogen ion in some medium or fluid. Uh, the the specific formula for hydrogen ion, it's the negative log of the hydrogen ion concentration, which is one of the reasons we wind up with the scale that sort of seems backwards. You know, you tend to think of when, because we talk about acidity mostly, and people tend to confuse increased acidity with increased pH, but it's the other way. Okay, so based on the concentrations of hydrogen ion that you typically see, um, the scale, and by by taking the negative log, the scale then basically runs from 1, which is the most acidic, to 14, which is the most basic. And and then pH of 7, right in the middle, is neutral. All right, now let's look at uh, characteristics of pH in the body. Uh, pH is one of those things that the body will maintain in very narrow limits. Okay, Very narrow limits. Um, and this is, this is total body pH where you would take, uh, for example, a blood sample and, and the blood being a reflection of the whole body's pH. As we'll see, certain tissues like muscle could be more, alka- uh, more alkaline or, or more acidic, but uh, total body pH. If we get more basic than about 8, well, let me back up, uh, normal body pH is around 7.4. Okay, so we're just a little bit on the alkaline or basic side. So normal, here's, uh, here's 7, so normal is about 7.4. If something happens to make the body more alkaline or basic, when you get to a range of about 8, you know, which is not a very high climb in pH, uh, climb in pH uh, you start to get an overstimulation of the central nervous system and people have convulsions and they go into tetany and it can result in uh, death relatively quickly. If the whole body pH goes down to and stays at around 6.8, it results in the opposite. The central nervous system being depressed and the person goes into a coma okay, and then eventually dies if, if, uh, if it's not corrected. Right? So the body maintains pH within a pretty narrow range, and we'll talk about a couple of the mechanisms that we use to accomplish that. Now, if the concentration of hydrogen ion goes up, that obviously means that pH is going to go down and we, come, we become more acidic. That can happen by either Increasing the accumulation of acids, or by getting rid of some of the base that we have in the body, or a combination of the both. Okay? And I'll give some examples in just a second. If the concentration of hydrogen ion goes uh, down, then pH goes up, and we become more basic or alkalotic. And that can occur by either us losing acids or by accumulation of more base. And let me give you some quick examples. I, I reshuffled some of these slides to make a little more sense. This next slide is a little further back. If you printed this out uh, uh, and brought it today, this slides back a few, a half a dozen or so. But here are some examples. Let's, let's look at an example of, um, uh, of this down here of a person becoming more alkalotic. One way that you can lose acid from the body is um, if somebody's sick and they're vomiting a lot, they can lose a lot of acid because when you vomit, you lose a lot of stomach acid. Okay? And so if this happens consistently over days and days, your your body is getting rid of this uh, acid that's not being replaced, and what happens is the body body becomes more basic or alkalotic, and your pH goes up. Um, one of the ways, uh, another way, is um, sometimes people, because of their cardiovascular disease or hypertension, as an example, may be prescribed a diuretic to take. And if there's an excess diuresis or uh, an excess loss of urine, then you can lose a lot of acid through your urine. Okay? And we'll look at specifically how that happens in the kidneys. Um, You can, let's go back up here, one of the ways that you can become more acidic is by accumulating more acids. So let's look at an example here with the disease diabetes. What do I mean by uncontrolled, well first of all, What's going on with diabetes? What's the underlying pathophysiology with diabetes? What's happening? Insulin. Okay, it could be there's, there's type 1 and type 2. It uh, typically has to do with insulin. Either you're not producing it or not producing enough of it, or you're producing it and it's not working correctly, right? So type 1 is, we used to call that juvenile onset diabetes. We now call it type 1. And what's going on there with that type of diabetes? You've got to get insulin injections because your pancreas is not producing insulin, right? Um, that comprises about 10% of the diagnosed diabetes in this country. 90% of diabetes in this country is what we call type 2. We used to call it adult onset diabetes, except now we're finding it uh, being diagnosed in uh, younger and younger and younger adults and now even in children. And so, in this case, your body is producing insulin, but what's happening? It's not working correctly, okay? And so, what does insulin do? When I say it's not working correctly, what is it not doing? Pardon? Yeah, it's glucose into the cells. The major job of insulin is to take glucose up into the cells so we can metabolize it, okay? So, if you got somebody, and so if somebody's not making insulin, they can take insulin injections or wear an insulin pump, which is a more slow-release type thing. Um, If they've got type 2 diabetes, they can either um, uh, take some kind of oral medication, or if it's severe, they can take injections. Uh, The idea is to get that glucose up into the cells so it can be metabolized. All right. When somebody... With diabetes is uncontrolled, they're not taking their medication or they're not taking care of themselves, basically the glucose is not getting up into their cells and so their blood glucose levels go high and they're not metabolizing glucose. We haven't talked about other fuels yet, but what in addition to carbohydrates, what are the other two nutrients that you can metabolize? Fats and protein, okay? Um, there's also alcohol, but nobody's interested in that one, so we won't talk about that. Um, fats is the next choice past carbohydrates to metabolize. So if you're having difficulty because of your diabetes, that you're not metabolizing carbohydrates, the body is going to shift and start burning fats at a higher rate. All right. The downside of that is that you produce what are called ketones or keto Acids. The more you metabolize fat, the more keto acids you produce, and that increases the amount of acids in the body. Um, and if anybody's worked with, with anybody with diabetes or uh, diabetic populations, one of the real concerns is uh, DKA, which is diabetic ketoacidosis. If their diabetes is uncontrolled for a long period of time, they produce a lot of keto acids or ketones and they become more acidic. And in fact, they can eventually go into a coma if it's not corrected. Okay? So that's an example of um, a, a metabolic acidosis. Another way that you can accumulate more acid in the body is just to hold your breath. Okay? You just stop breathing. One of the ways that we get rid of acid in the body is through carbon dioxide, which we'll talk about in just a minute. So if you hold your breath, you're not blowing out your carbon dioxide, and so it starts to build up in your body. Okay? And as we see what will happen when that carbon dioxide builds up in the body far enough, then you start to become more acidic. One of the ways to become more alkaline or basic is to hyperventilate. Okay, to breathe an excessive amount. When you go to anybody like gone to Colorado to go skiing, okay. What what kind of altitude did you go to? Uh, I don't know the what where'd you go? Keystone, Keystone nine thousand feet. Okay, you know we're at about nine hundred feet here in Atlanta. You go spring break or whatever, you go to Keystone, to uh, Colorado to go skiing. You're at about nine thousand feet. Did you find yourself breathing a little a little more heavily when you are at altitude? Yeah. Okay. Uh, because, uh, and again, uh, these are all previews because we're going to talk about altitude down the road some. We're going to talk about uh, why there's not as much oxygen in the air. Uh, There is percentage-wise, but not total amount-wise. So you start breathing more heavily to try to bring in more air, but what that causes you to do is to exhale an excess amount of carbon dioxide and you actually start to become more alkaline. Okay? So... These are different ways that we can either accumulate more acid and and become more acidic. Um, uh, A way that you can can, uh, lose more acid and become more basic, you know, as examples. Uh, We'll talk next week with this bicarbonate loading of how you can actually accumulate more base by attempting to, to, to manipulate our buffering system and become more alkalotic. Okay. The one thing we haven't talked about yet in terms of disrupting acid-base balance is exercise. Without some kind of underlying disease or pathology or, or trauma, there's very few things that you can do that disrupts acid-base balance more than high-intensity exercise. Okay. So, as we've talked about already, basically, through this uh, anaerobic glycolytic process, we produce more lactic acid, and uh, the body's pH drops dramatically. Uh, Skip over that one. Okay. Inside the muscle cells, pH can go down below that 6.8. It can go down to about 6.4 or so. So, muscle pH can go down pretty far. Blood pH can go down to about 6.8. Okay, so this is the level I was talking about where people start going into a coma. Right? Well, what happens is the body reacts fairly quickly to reestablish normal acid-base balance so that you don't just go do high-intensity exercise and then fall into a coma because your pH is too low. This sort of displays this graphically high intensity exercise, muscle pH goes down, blood pH goes down. Okay, uh, This just shows the same thing, so I'll just skip over that one. This we talked about last time, the consequences of pH going down too far, particularly in muscle cells. The activity of key enzymes is reduced. Myosin ATPase, creatine kinase, PFK. If we reduce the activity of those enzymes, then we start to reduce the energy state in the muscle. We're not going to have enough energy to maintain high intensity. We also directly interfere with the ability of this muscle to produce force. Okay? It interferes with calcium binding to troponin, which is one of the key steps in that whole cascade of events of the muscle being able to form a cross-bridge and, and produce force. Okay, so we decrease calcium-troponin binding which directly interferes with the muscle producing force. So basically decreasing pH leads to fatigue by the muscle. Alright, now what, do we, what does the body do about this? You exercise at high intensity, you produce more acid, uh, more hydrogen ion, and pH goes down. What does the body do? We have buffers. Okay, Buffers are chemicals that uh, can uh, uh, attenuate or reduce big changes in pH. You can sort of think of buffers as being able to take up or absorb hydrogen ions to try to prevent big swings in pH. We've got some buffers in the cells and we've got some buffers in the blood. Okay, Proteins make good buffers. Okay, Proteins are able to take up these hydrogen ions and buffer uh, changes. So there's certain proteins that are in the cells and certain proteins that are in the blood, plasma proteins, that are good at taking up some of these hydrogen ions and preventing our pH from going down too far. We also have chemical... Uh, and one of the... Uh, Proteins in blood that's important to do this is hemoglobin, okay, is hemoglobin. Now, we also have some chemical buffers. There are phosphate chemical buffers and bicarbonate chemical buffers, and we're just going to focus on the bicarbonate. This this is the one chemical equation I'll give you in, in this section, and it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward bicarbonate is a good buffer for the body. It's not not a real strong or powerful buffer, but it's a good one because we have lots of it and we can pretty easily regulate how much bicarbonate we have in the body. Okay? So it's a a good buffer for us. Basically, here's what happens. That hydrogen ion that's going to make the pH go down combines with bicarbonate, which is HCO3. It in turn forms an acid which you might think is a bad thing this carbonic acid but the good thing about this particular acid is that can it can immediately be broken down into water and carbon dioxide okay two fairly innocuous well at least the water is the water can just combine with the water in the body what can we do with this we can breathe it out okay so you're exercising at high intensity, you're producing a lot of lactate and a lot of hydrogen ion. The lactate, we know what we're going to do with it. The hydrogen ion that goes out into the blood can combine with bicarbonate, form carbonic acid, water, carbon dioxide. This is already in the blood. It can circulate around to the lungs and you start to breathe faster and you can blow out this carbon dioxide. And by blowing out this carbon dioxide, we are actually in a sense, getting rid of this, this hydrogen ion over here. Okay? We, we, we didn't actually blow out the hydrogen ion, but we were able to convert it to something else that's not going to hurt us pH-wise. All right? Remember when I said we go out to the track and we run 400 meters as, as fast as we can, what's the predominant energy source? 400 meters, one lap around the track, predominant energy system. Glycolysis. Glycolysis. Anaerobic or Aerobic. Anaerobic. Anaerobic. But I asked if you were breathing hard when you got done. Everybody said yes. And I said why? Because it's an anaerobic energy system. Well, part of it is you gear up your aerobic energy process to metabolize lactate. But I only gave you half of the answer there because part of your excess breathing when you're running is this. And it's to get rid of this carbon dioxide. Okay? So when you're exercising at high intensity, you are breathing harder. Some of it is to ramp up your aerobic system, but some of it is to get rid of this carbon dioxide. Okay? And when we get to the uh, pulmonary section, we'll talk about how this this drives ventilation and, and causes you to breathe faster. Okay. Um... So this, this is just a summary that we've got buffer systems in the cells, like inside the muscle cells, that are proteins and phosphates and, and bicarbonates, and we've got buffer systems in the blood, um, proteins, hemoglobin, which is a protein, and then this bicarbonate. What this means is respiratory compensation, if we get more CO2, we breathe faster to get rid of the CO2, okay? Okay. So, when you exercise at high intensity, your first buffer is respiratory. We buffer hydrogen ion as bicarbonate. We wind up with more water and CO2, and you start to breathe faster to get rid of the CO2. Okay. Now, that's good because it happens quickly. It helps us start to get rid of this extra acidity quickly so we don't become too acidic. The problem is, it's a classic negative feedback mechanism. The more we breathe off CO2, let's say you finish the exercise and you've stopped, you're still breathing heavy, but the more you breathe off the CO2, the less stimulus there is to keep breathing hard. And so your breathing slows down, slows down, slows down, And it eventually slows down to the point that you don't get the pH completely back to normal. Okay. So this respiratory compensation, this uh, ventilation, this this uh, pulmonary buffer, we produce more hydrogen ion, we buffer it as CO2 and water, and then we breathe faster to get rid of it. Happens quickly but it's incomplete. So we need another mechanism to get rid of this excess acid. And what do we use? We use our kidneys, Okay, our renal system. We use our kidneys. Kidneys are going to act more slowly over time, but they can very carefully control either how much hydrogen ion they dump into the urine or how much bicarbonate it dumps into the urine. And it, okay, this is a little busy, but uh, here's a capillary that runs through the kidney. Here's kidney tissue wall right here. And then here's the collecting tubule where the urine is being collected and, and flowing out towards the bladder. All right, here's our water and our CO2. It can be pushed backwards to carbonic acid. It can be split into the hydrogen ion and bicarbonate. We dump the hydrogen ion into the urine and we pull the bicarbonate back into the blood to use it again. Okay? Urine pH can go down as low as, I think, 3, like 2.5 or 3 in terms of pH because we can take out lots of hydrogen ion and dump it into the urine and send it out that way. Okay, So, so two major ways to restore pH... Ventilation, which is fast but incomplete, and renal, which is much slower, but it can it, it's complete. It can finely tune the body's pH. Okay, by either getting rid of... Next week we're going to talk about manipulating this system where we're going to consume a lot of bicarbonate, which you can do, but now the body's going to have a whole lot more bicarbonate So, it'll go the opposite of this. Instead of this and taking out the hydrogen ion, it'll actually take excess bicarbonate and dump it in here and get rid of it. Okay? So, the kidneys are really, are are long-term fine control of pH. All right. So, that's what we're going to do next week. Uh, Oh, let me leave. We'll do this next week. Um, Let let me go back to this, this uh, interval training and... and, uh, This lactate threshold. Turn this off. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. Alright, let me give you a simple example. Uh, the, the the point at which this lactate threshold occurs. Okay. The point at which this lactate threshold occurs is not fixed. This is at this is at um, Uh, oxygen consumption or exercise intensity okay so here's this exercise test that goes all the way up to the person's max and let's say this occurs at 60% of their maximum with certain types of training you can get this point to shift over this way so essentially what this means is they're able to run at this much higher of an intensity before they start to get a lot more lactate accumulation. Okay? So the question here is, how do, we, how do we get this lactate threshold point to shift over this way? Um, you can go out and run, do some of your training, or you're running right at that intensity. Okay, And if most people don't run at that intensity much, it'll help that lactate threshold move over. Um, But as the example I gave you last time, what I think is most effective is to expose the body to levels of lactate that are higher than it's used to. And we can do that with certain types of intervals. Uh, Quick example. Uh, When I was in grad school, a friend of mine was um, uh, starting to do a lot of long distance running, and he got to a goal where he wanted to run uh, 10 kilometers a 10 k road race, he wanted to run in 40 minutes. okay? He wanted to break 40 minutes in a 10k. That was kind of his, his uh, uh, you know barrier that he wanted to break. I can't remember exactly, but I think that works out to be something like seven uh, six twenty seven minutes per mile. Something like that is the pace that you' got to average to break for forty minutes guy didn't do any interval running at all, basically all I did was just go out and run three miles, he'd go out and run five miles, you know, that kind of thing. So we said, all right, so let's, let's, let's test this theory and set up some intervals for you. We wanted him to run a little faster than this goal pace so that he would get used to running a little bit faster, and we're going to do intervals so you can, you're not running this pace for uh, uh, the, the whole 6.2 miles. So what we've set up was a goal, uh, uh, an interval pace of six minutes per mile. Okay? Well, we want to do these intervals. If we want to tax the anaerobic glycolytic system, what kind of time interval should these intervals be? Six minutes? No? One to two minutes. This worked out perfectly because uh, a quarter mile... This pace at a quarter mile is 90 seconds. Okay? 90 seconds. So here's what we did. We had him, you know, go out and run a mile or so, make sure he got thoroughly warmed up, stretched out, ready to go. So he starts his first interval. His blood lactates were probably, you know, one and a half or two. He runs his first interval, and his lactates go up to here. The, and we had him do what we call incomplete recovery intervals. The running interval was 90 seconds and so then we had him rest for 90 seconds. So what's his blood lactate going to do during that 90 seconds when he's just walking around? Going down. So uh, blood lactate starts coming down. Before it gets down to baseline again though It's time for interval number two. And so off he goes. Lactates go up like this. So then he rests for 90 seconds and lactates start to come down during that 90 seconds rest. But before they get down to here, he sets off on interval number three. Okay? So you can see the pattern with each of these subsequent intervals. Because we're not giving him a a complete amount of rest, the lactate levels are going up and up and up. Right, and if you're not used to doing these, three, four, five of these and you're shot. And, and so what happened was, you, know, when you get when, in this scenario, when he got to a point where he couldn't complete a quarter mile, one lap around the track in 90 seconds because he was so fatigued, then he's done. Cools down, that session's done. What this does is it sequentially pumps up The blood lactate levels, because now the body has to learn how to metabolize and deal with much higher levels of lactate. And what this results in is this lactate threshold pushing over this way. Okay? All right. So incomplete recovery intervals, if he was working more on uh, uh, being very economical at a certain running pace... We wouldn't want him because uh, what does what somebody's running form look like in this interval compared to this one? <laughs> Looks like they're running with a refrigerator on their back, right? Okay. So if we're, if we're going to work on something like running economy where we want them to be as efficient and economical uh, as possible at a certain running pace, you would do more complete recovery intervals, you do an interval at, at a race pace, and then you make sure that they completely recover before they do the next one. This one's metabolic. We're trying to jack up the lactate levels to get the body to learn how to deal with and metabolize that, that extra lactate, okay? And so that pushes our lactate threshold over and hopefully improves their endurance performance.